Great, my name's Chris. Uh, I am uh, here in Cambridge because I'm training to be a vicar, um, someone who leads a church. Uh, so uh, next summer, I, I'm in my final year out of three. Next summer, I will be heading back up north um, to become a curate, which is like a trainee vicar. Um, I've had a great time in Cambridge. If you want a really fun way to spend three years having an extended holiday, then train to be a vicar. It's wonderful. <laughs> the bit where you actually do the job is quite hard, but the training bit is mega, mega fun. Um, uh, I'm married to a wonderful woman called Rebecca. Um, we have a little baby boy. He's just turned one called Theo. And in exciting news, in March, at the beginning of March, we're going to be having another baby, which is... Uh, both super exciting, but also absolutely mental, because they'll both be under 18 months, and then three months later, I'll be starting a new job. Um, so uh, pray for us, pray for Rebecca, pray for Theo, pray for the unborn baby. Um, we had our 20-week scan on Monday, and it's amazing. Does any, is anybody um, trained in how to do those um, thingies? Uh, has anyone... <laughs> where they put the wand on the tummy. Um, that's what I mean, not this. Um, it's amazing. They can zoom in on the baby's heart, and you can see which way the blood is going. It's absolutely incredible. Um, uh, uh, it's it just mind-blowing um, and really eye-opening. Uh, park that over there, all those things I've said, um, because they don't really have anything to do with where it's going tonight. It's just telling you a bit about me. Um, I want to start off with two words that um, uh, are quite difficult to hear. They're authority and obedience. Um, and we kind of don't like those words as a culture, do we? We don't like being told what to do by this distant power and authority. And you kind of see that play itself out. You kind of like the, the, um, the words that sort of run through our culture are be true to yourself. Like, be obedient to who you really are, and don't let an authority, a power somewhere distant, tell you what to do. And sometimes this is good if the authority is bad. You, um, uh, it's kind of come home to me a little bit how true this um, anti-authority thing is. When you look at uh, a lot of the protests that are going on, a people's vote, we want the say, we want to choose what we do, we don't want a distant authority telling us what to do. So I've got these two words, obedience and authority, going around in my head. And I think Jesus has a lot to say about obedience and authority. And we're going we're gonna to come back to these two words at the end and throughout in the middle a little bit, but just have this idea that your understanding of obedience and authority isn't necessarily how Jesus understood obedience and authority, okay? Because we live in different cultures, we live in different times. Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, and he lived in the Middle East, and he, uh, he sort of had a different life, a different way of doing things, and a different set of stories that his culture had told. And so when we come to this passage tonight in Matthew 5, if you want to grab a Bible, that would be really great. They're on those white chairs, uh, white tables, sorry, around you. Um, Matthew 5 is on page 969. If you've joined us for the first time, we're the third evening into a series on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is uh, Jesus' kind of manifesto of what it means to live the good life, what it means to live the Godward life. He started by telling us in the Beatitudes some of the most beautiful bits of uh, prose ever spoken, ever written, what blessing looks like, what the Godward life looks like. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
And last week, James unpacked for us our identity as Christians. We are salt of the earth and the light of the world. And then we have this kind of intro to the next bit of teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. But what I want to do is take us back a little bit to the start of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has gone up a mountain. And now it's really important to understand what uh, the writer of Matthew is doing here in this book. Because Jesus is talking to a bunch of essentially Jewish people, people who are steeped in the story of their people. And so when Matthew is telling his story of Jesus' life, starting right at the beginning of Matthew 1 with the Christmas story, um, also called the birth of Jesus, um, going up to where we are now, he's, he's doing something really intentional. And I want to suggest to you, he is trying to set Jesus up as another Moses. And if you're a Jewish person, Moses is super, super important. Moses gave you the Ten Commandments. He led your people out of slavery in Egypt. Has anybody seen the film The Prince of Egypt? Um, It's a fantastic film. It has some wonderful uh, tunes in, such as um, uh, uh, There Will Be Miracles When You Believe. I'm not going to sing. Um, It's a... (laughs) Uh, no, I can't. I don't even know the tune anymore. Um, it's been so long. But the story of Moses is that Moses was born um, in essentially slavery. His parents were slaves um, uh, to the Egyptians. The Hebrew people were the Egyptian slaves. And he was born in a time where Pharaoh had decreed the death of all under two boys. So if you're under two and you're a boy, you were to be killed. And so Moses' mother, or um, a midwife, puts Moses in a basket, and he floats down the river, and he gets adopted into the house of Pharaoh because he's found by one of Pharaoh's daughters. And he is raised a son of the king. And the story goes on, and he meets God in a burning bush. Um, Well, he kills someone, then he meets God in a burning bush. Um, And uh, God commissions him to um, lead God's people, the Hebrew people, the slaves, out of slavery, out of Egypt. And um, ten plagues happen. This is a really long story that I've cut really short um, for time's sake. Ten plagues happen. Uh, God leads his people out through the Red Sea. Uh, God parts the Red Sea, and he leads them out, and they're in the desert. And God calls Moses up a mountain to receive the law. Okay? Now we have the story of Jesus. Jesus is born in a time where there is a a foreign king ruling the land of the Jewish people. They aren't slaves, but they're not completely free. And the king is called Herod, and if you know your Christmas story well, the three kings, um, the magi, the ones who are sort of carrying gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and ride on camels in the Christmas story, usually played by three little boys, um, uh, uh, have a conversation with Herod, and they go, we're going to see the king, and Herod goes, Great, um, tell me where he is, because I'd like to see him. Um, But actually, Herod feels threatened, and he commands the death of all the boys under two. Do you see where I'm going here? And then an angel tells Jesus' dad, Joseph, to take uh, Jesus to Egypt so that he is safe. And then Jesus comes out of Egypt into the place where it has been foretold that he will be born. In fact, it is um, told in the book of Hosea that out of Egypt I will call my son. God called Jesus, his son, out of Egypt. God and Matthew have been setting up Jesus here to be a second Moses in this bit. He's gone up the mountain. He sits down to teach. So when Jesus begins to speak right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, 
Matthew's listeners and readers are tuned in for something big to happen, for someone with authority to give them a new law. And that is what you would expect. And then we come to our passage here. Let me read chapter 5, verse 17 to 22. To, just to 20, sorry. Chapter 5, verses 17 to 20 on page 969. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Great. So, who knows what the law and the prophets are? Um, Unless you're, pardon, the Old Testament, that is a a pretty good guess. Um, Yeah, essentially, you're right. If you're Jewish, you'd absolutely know what they are. Let me give you a little bit of um, uh, geeky uh, sort of Old Testamental knowledge. Uh, This is all stuff that I've learned over the last two years, so um, I'm putting my training into practice so it hasn't just been a holiday. It's actually useful. Uh, The Old Testament is the Jewish Bible, essentially. It's the Jewish scriptures. Um, uh, Some people call it the Hebrew Bible. Um, uh, As Christians, we call it the Old Testament because we also have a newer part of it. And it's it's also called the Tanuk, T-A-N-U-K. And uh, it's made up of three parts. The Torah, that's the T-A part. The Navim, that's the N part. And the Ketavim, that's the K part of Tanuk. English, it means the law, the prophets, and the writings. And so the Torah, the law, is the first five books of the Bible. Interestingly enough, in the book of Matthew, there are five blocks of teaching. And um, the Jewish people think that Moses wrote the first five books. Another pointer of Matthew saying, look, this is like a second Moses. Listen to him. And then the... um, the, uh, the Navim, the prophets, are made up of the uh, major and minor prophets in the Old Testament as well, Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, the 12 minor prophets as well, but they're also made up of the books of Judges, Kings, and Chronicles too. So we've got Jesus saying, I have not come to get rid of all the, all the stuff that has gone on before. I have not come to get rid of all the law and the prophets. Because the law and the prophets aren't just about the rules and um, foretellings of what's going to happen, but the law and the prophets contain God's interaction with God's people. They contain the history of God over and over and over again acting in the lives of his people, the Hebrew people. And this goes right back to the beginning. And it's really important to understand the story of God and his people because it's into that context that Jesus speaks. And so we go right back to creation. We go right back to Adam and Eve being created and uh, them uh, eating the apple and sin entering the world and God kicking them out and cursing. So in that, if we can imagine the Trinity dancing like that, three rather than two. And we move two. on to Noah Sometimes and God seeing the world always in together, its wickedness that, that, that grace, and him saying, that, that I'm going oneness. to destroy it all except for Noah. It makes us think of joy, really, doesn't it? Seeing a, seeing a dance like that. 
if we, we move if on we to can Abraham, get the icon Abraham, the father of the faith, if you're a Jewish person, through whom uh, God would bless we, the entire we can, world. If we return Abraham, to this icon, uh, we, we can see in their sons. communion the space left for the viewer. And then God's people end up who's invited to join the circle. As Moses. This they is a community that invites God humanity powerfully to join against in. God's people's enemies. And they in our passage today, it's actually quite hard to the disentangle the, the communion of Jesus and the Father from the life they are of Jesus' followers. They led out into the desert through the Red Sea, and Moses goes up the mountain in the gospel and gets the law. And then they wander around for 40 years in the desert because they disobey. May they all be one, they have been brought out of Egypt one because we're united with God in Christ. As you are in me, and then they're and led around in the you, desert for 40 years on their way to the promised us. land. And Moses dies I just before them, they reach the promised land. I and them, and you and me, that they may become the next leader, one. leads them into the promised land. So in that land, kind of intermingling, that interpenetration of father and son, the ones to whom they are too, we can hardly be teased out or extracted from that interlocking unity. A man after God's own heart and Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, authority. So perhaps we don't muse on it as often as we might. And then God's enemies come in and smash them, and a whole bunch of stuff happens and it's Jesus. a little bit complicated and they can't remember it. We are but there's the a whole bunch of, of prophets Christ, who come who in and Father, speak judgment the against these kings and the We're nations who to come and scatter God's Trinity. people. And that brings us up to about zero This means zero that even AD, though we may at times feel lonely, know, two and a half we minutes. Um, if in you're fact, really, really interested in how alone. it all goes, read the Old Testament. The hour is um, coming when you will be scattered and you will leave out. me alone. Yet I'm not alone because the Father so is with me. And so that's the context to which Jesus speaks. And of course, the people of God have I been able to say to that for thousands of years. You think of Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, and for you are with me. The law and the prophets. But how much more... Now, and so if we've defined what the law and the prophets the are, we really need to kind of define what the word fulfill means. And I think I've got several what else does ways that mean for us. It means that the that relationship fulfills the law us. and the prophets, because the law and the prophets aren't just the one truth, thing. Says Jesus. There's some poetry. Use the language Genesis. of Paul. We gradually become in reality what we are theologically. You know, um, become what you are, says Paul. Live a life worthy of the There's gospel some, of Christ. Uh, lots of counting of how it much doesn't happen overnight. There are. That's the I was baptised as an adult over 30 years ago, and I'm so still appalled Jesus by the way I can sometimes this, behave does like it a lot of ways. And the first way he but does this is actually by keeping the requirements of the law. It's as simple as that. There are a whole bunch of laws I find it consoling. That even Paul um, says, if you've ever opened Leviticus, you will know this, or Deuteronomy. Um, for example, in Leviticus 13, ahead, it gives you a whole bunch of rules the goal of how to get rid the of mildew. Um, not uh, in a common Jesus. problem, but um, uh, something that if you live 2,000 years ago, you would need to know. Perhaps some of us navel-gazing over our own sins and Jesus shortcomings and more just pressing on. Laws. Or in because Leviticus 19, there's an instruction the against wearing cloth of two different fabrics. In this passage, um, I speak these things so that they may laws. have my in joy sense, made complete in themselves. The laws. My or we can read the word fulfilled. Of course, we can't be full of joy all the time, this side of eternity. We'd just be grinning idiots. But if we could allow some space for joy to bubble up in us, and its purpose was to help God's people deal with sin and to be holy. We could think whether we're allowing our life to become too full of I shoulds rather than I could. And Jesus is the truest and best way to deal with sin, and the ultimate example. Above all, how does this change us? Jesus prays that the love with which you, the Father, have loved me, may be in them, and I a whole bunch of sacrifices and a whole bunch of things you have to do to be made holy before God. But the pinnacle, the highest, the zenith of them all was Yom Kippur. We started off by thinking about the loneliness that people can experience in a city like Cambridge, and it was the way of dealing with sin of the community, but full of people perhaps moving on. Now, atonement literally means 
invites us all to become to be part of community. One. Atonement brought dance, people and God back together. People and God have been separated ever the since the beginning of the story right over here when Adam decided to disobey God and turned his back on all the good there. stuff that God had and all the, the delights in the garden. Once we've we are, I suggest, asked to open it in to invite others in to that community so that they too can share the God joy ever of the dance. Since. But God, in the his goodness, earlier, through the Old Testament, people. gave ways great, for great humans see. and God to there be other in forms the same of dance place, that have so that holy and unholy could be together. And the, the Day of Atonement, and, and Yom Kippur, clip was of the way, the highest expression of how that happened. I warn you, though, just two or three no, seconds of a song that perhaps we might not Aaron. choose Aaron was like Moses number two. But I thought it was worth having for the sake of all. He's the one who made sacrifices So if we can see the next... Clip. That would be and great. it tells us in Leviticus 16 that Aaron, to dress in special Churches clothes, like had that, to take a bull going to join the in. tent of meeting, this holy of but holy places. Did you notice there, I mean, obviously the people lined up to join in, but even those there, who on the stage, if you've looked seen to me it, as though they weren't part of the original mob, things they wanted to, to be part of it. Just to deal with his own sin, so he would be in a place to deal with the community. So I wonder whether we could take time this week to meditate on John 17, to, cast lots. to meditate on the Trinity, and one of them even, is to be the sin and the community of the Trinity, and it is slaughtered. To bring to mind our part in the divine community, the to think of those we might know who are hovering on the edge of the and dance, this second goat to stretch is allowed out to our stay alive. But what Aaron does, what the priest does, is he lays his hands name. upon the goat. Let's pray. And over the goat is confessed the sin and the wickedness of the community. Our Lord God. And this goat is then cast out someone into stretched the out It is literally hand the skin drew us That's into where we get the phrase your from. divine dance. All the sin of the whole community ends up on I this pray, goat. Father, that and we it may is be the channel from the people, to draw others in, taking to their the joy sin away. and the love of your community. You see, that's exactly in the name what of Jesus Father, Son, and to. Holy Spirit. Amen. He is our great high priest. Unlike Aaron, he doesn't have to dress in funny clothes. He doesn't have to make sacrifice for his own sin because he was sinless. He is in complete at-oneness with God because he is God. He is the goat that dies for us as the sin offering for the world. His blood is enough to bring the presence of God to us. He is the scapegoat that takes on the sins of the world. He is cast out of the presence of God so that he could bring back into the presence of God those who are lost and wandering in the wilderness, in the desert, alone. We aren't so different from 5,000 years ago. We mess up as a community individually, we cut ourselves off from God. And Jesus, tonight, as he does every night, offers you the opportunity for him to be your sin offering and your scapegoat. He has died the death that you need to become one with God. And he has taken all your sin far away from you all that stuff that you have done or not done or said or thought or felt or has been done to you because sometimes sin affects us, not because we've done it, but because people have done it to us. And he takes 
that away. And he takes the shame of it away, and he takes the guilt of it away. It all points to Jesus. And maybe tonight you're feeling adrift and far from God, cut off from real life. He invites you back in to his welcoming community, to be back at one with him. And maybe it's for the thousandth time that you'll be coming back in to the presence of God. Maybe it's for the first time. But you are welcomed in no matter what you have done because of what Jesus has done. Because the entirety of the law and the prophets point towards him as our priest, our sacrifice, our sin offering, the one who's cast out for us and the one who draws us back in. He calls you home tonight. And this is where we begin to talk about authority and obedience. Because Jesus didn't just stop there saying, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. He then goes on to talk about obeying the commandments and keeping the commandments and our righteousness being more than the righteousness of the Pharisees. And because the whole, and there's a whole bunch more stuff to say, but we're running out of time because I've gone on far too long already. The whole of scriptures point to Jesus. The whole of the Old Testament points to Jesus. He is our new and better Adam. He's the one who didn't give in to temptation, who was obedient to death for us. He is our new and better Noah. He rescued us from the judgment of God so that we could live new life. He is the new and better Moses. He rescues us out of slavery and leads us towards the promised land. He is our new and better Joshua. He leads us into the promised land, not one that's flowing with milk and honey, but one where God is in charge and there is no more sin and death and sickness and suffering. He is our new and better David, the one who is not just only after God's own heart, but is from the Father's heart of God. The one who gives us a new and clean heart. He is the one prophesied in Genesis 3 when God is casting Adam and Eve out the garden. He says to um, the snake uh, and to Eve, he says to the snake, he says to the snake, you will bite his heel. And he says to Eve, and your offspring will crush his head. Jesus is not God's plan B, he is God's plan A. And so when we talk about being obedient to the commandments, we're talking about being obedient to Jesus, because Jesus is everything that these commandments are pointing towards. They're everything that God has going on for the last however long in history. It's everything that God is doing in history. It's about being obedient to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of them. Jesus is our righteousness. This last little throwaway bit at the end of this passage, um, uh, your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. Um, That's a very funny Jewish joke. I'm sure you all got it. Probably not. It's funny because you can't be more righteous than the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the kings of righteousness. 
They were tasked with making sure everybody was righteous. And so they didn't just keep the law, they made extra laws so it was super impossible for you to break the law. Um, Let me give you an example. This is about um, keeping the Sabbath, not working on the Sabbath day. Um, uh, In the Midrash, which is like a collection of their extra laws, we note that a new lamp can be moved from one place to another on the Sabbath, but not an old one. Hot food may be kept warm by covering with clothes, feathers, or dried flax, but not by covering with damp herbs or straw, which could engender fresh heat and thus work on the Sabbath day. An ass may go out on the Sabbath day wearing its saddlecloth if this was fixed on before the Sabbath, but may not wear a bell even if it is plugged. That would be work for the ass. Goats may go out with protective cloth on their others if it is to keep them dry, but not if it is intended to collect the milk. It's a bit complicated. Um, The Pharisees didn't want to break the law, but they had absolutely lost sight of what the law was about. The law was about helping God's people be at one with God and be holy, but instead they had made it about rules and regulations and about box ticking and about doing the right That's where we get the word righteous from, doing the right thing. Whereas for God, holiness has always been about our heart posture, where our heart is pointing towards. Holiness is about obedience towards God. It is about seeking after God and God alone with all that we have. And you see, this is where the law falls down. You can't legislate legislate holiness. You can't legislate holiness. You can't give a bunch of rules about how to be holy because then it comes about keeping the rules. Holiness is about the heart's attitude. It's about what we choose to worship and keep us first place in our lives. The law and the prophets were given to help God's people to see how they were to live as holy people but they became boxes to be ticked and actions to avoid or do, rather than as pointers towards a living, loving, active God. Jesus came to give us his righteousness. That's the only way we're going to be more righteous than the Pharisees. If the one who lived perfectly, who died perfectly, gives us his righteousness. And now that's such an easy thing to say and such an easy thing to mentally assent to. It's only because of Jesus that I can be made right. But it's about receiving all that God has to give us. One of my favorite lecturers at college, a chap called Paul Weston, he's got a PhD in missiology, which is telling people about Jesus, essentially. And he said one of the most profound things that um, I've heard over the last year. I find it easy to know it but I find it so much more difficult to receive it. It's easy to know that we are made righteous, that we are made right with God, but it's so much more difficult to receive it. Because it's in us receiving it that we are truly made holy and we can truly be obedient to God. We have to receive God's righteousness to be truly obedient, for this obedience to go deeper into us. And as I come in to close, as I try to point you towards a greater holiness, 
as I try to point your hearts towards the right intent, it can be so easy to offer you a whole bunch of things to do. Read your Bible more so that you know Jesus better. Pray more so that you have spent more time with God. Confess your sin more so that you are more sinless. Come to church more, give more money, do more good deeds. Tell more people about Jesus. Now, none of these things are wrong in and of themselves, and in fact, they're all part of a good Christian life. They're all the spiritual disciplines that help us to grow more like Jesus, and they are part of obedience. But telling you to do stuff is exactly the opposite of Jesus coming to fulfill the law. I don't want to offer you more law. Instead, I want to invite you in a moment and now to give authority and obedience to God. And all you have to do to do that is say yes to God. Invite God to be in control, saying yes to the words of life and love that he speaks over you, inviting God to do more in you. Invite him in to convict you of sin and invite him to speak his words of healing over that. Invite him to give you a new and clean heart that chases after him. Invite him to the places where addictions and habits and routines hold strong. Give him authority over those places. Invite him into the bruised and broken and vulnerable and damaged bits so he can make them whole. Give him the authority to speak words of truth over those places in your life. Invite him into the arrogant, selfish, overconfident attitudes that you have allowed to rule your life. And God has always promised this. In Jeremiah 31, he says he will write his law on our hearts. He will write his law on our hearts.